to Ruth chapter 2. It's a good Christmas book, the Bethlehem story. Not Mary and Joseph, but Ruth and Boaz. Last week, uh, Dennis came in my office. We talked about what it means to be empty and then be full. And Dennis came into my room. He was very excited to say he was thinking about his life last night and about how before he got saved, and he was saved a little later in life, obviously, that he thought his life was full. He had a successful career as a teacher. He had opened one or two businesses of his own that had been successful. And he had great wife and three beautiful daughters and on and on he told me about all the things and it wasn't until he uh, had Jesus as Savior that he realized that even though he had all that that he was really empty Um, he didn't know what fullness was really all about until he met Jesus and and just to hear him with such intensity and emotion tell that story about what he thought was fullness was emptiness uh, and finding out what real fullness was just brought life to Ruth chapter 1. It was just, and he could tell it much better, um, but it was a great story. And, and that story really is what's continuing on in Ruth 2. And to give you a little synopsis, is the same sort of video we showed last week. It's just a real visual overview of the content of chapter 2 tonight. Instead of reading the whole chapter, I, I'd like you to take a look at this. In chapter 1, we learn about where Ruth came from. A man named Elimelech marries a woman named Naomi in the town of Bethlehem. They have two sons, and they all travel to Moab during a famine. Elimelech dies, and the two sons marry women from Moab. One marries Orpah, the other marries Ruth. Those two men die in Moab, and Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Orpah returns to her family, but Ruth travels with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Chapter 2 begins with Ruth asking Naomi if she could go and glean from the fields. To glean means to go into other people's fields and gather the grain that was accidentally left behind by the harvest workers. This was generally done by the poor, the foreigner, and the widow. As Ruth is gleaning, she comes across a field belonging to a man named Boaz. He was a righteous man from the same clan as Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech, who had died. As Boaz is going through his fields, he notices Ruth and ask one of his workers about her. The man responds, She's the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi. She asked if she could glean here, and has been working since early morning, except for a short rest. Boaz then says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Stay and glean with the women here on these fields. Don't go to anyone else's. These men won't harm you, and when you are thirsty, you may drink the water that my workers have. Ruth falls to her face, bowing to him, and saying, Why have I found favor in your eyes? I'm a foreigner. Boaz responds, I've heard about your situation. I've heard that your husband has died, but that you chose to leave your family, friends, and country to stay with your mother-in-law in a foreign land. May the Lord bless you for this. Ruth is very thankful and goes back to gleaning. At mealtime, Boaz calls to her and brings her to the table of the workers to eat and drink with them. She ate until she was full and even had leftovers, which she saved. When she goes back to work, Boaz tells his workers to let her glean even in places that they haven't harvested. 
and don't rebuke her for it. He even tells them to leave some extra grains of wheat for her. At the end of the day, Ruth goes home with about an ephah of barley, which is about five and a half gallons, enough to feed two women for at least two weeks, and she tells Naomi about Boaz, the man who owns the field. Naomi informs her that Boaz is a close relative of theirs and tells Ruth to stay with Boaz and work only in that field. So Ruth gleaned in the field belonging to Boaz until the end of the harvest and continued living with her mother-in-law, Naomi. I'd like you to think about tonight this truth. God has the power to keep his promises. Um, God had made a promise to Israel that he would bring a king, and he does that. He does it in some very peculiar ways. We talked about that in the introduction lesson and how God's going to providentially do that um, through uh, a Moabitess and Boaz and their line 10 generations later. We explained all that. And so tonight, I just want to give you some insights and some applications and get you to be involved a little bit in that. And so we're going to look at the two ways that God uh, usually works to keep his promises to his people. And and I, I think that one of the things amongst many that you should get by the end of the study of Ruth is that God is faithful to his word. Hesed, um, you remember the styles were here. Kesed, their daughter they named, is an English derivative of the Hebrew word, which means covenant, faithfulness, or love. And that's a big word. It's used 12 different times in this book. And you, see, you begin to see God's covenant love that he brings into the life of, of Bo, Ruth through Boaz and to Naomi as well and how he takes care of them. But my two points tonight are this. God keeps his promises, and here's how he does it. He does it, number one, through people. And I, and I want to just give you two contrast character studies Um, It's debatable, and amongst a lot of people, if Boaz is a type of Christ or a picture of Christ, I would vote yes, although the Bible doesn't explicitly say that as it does about other characters and other things in other places. But I think the comparisons are so great. Um, The fact that he's called in Hebrew Goel, which means kinsman redeemer, and so he has a lot of traits, and we're going to see them tonight. So when you do think, we're not going to just look at Boaz, we're going to look through Boaz. And by that I mean, we're going to look and see the traits that he has and the things that we can learn from it. But the greater lesson, the, the point of the book of Ruth is, is that we would see Christ in him. And wouldn't that be true of all of us? Wouldn't we want that to be true, that Jesus Christ could be seen in all of us? So with that in mind, God keeps his promises through people. He did that through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did it through Joseph, Moses, and so many more of the Old Testament prophets. God has the power to bring his promises to pass without using people, but that's not the way he chooses to do things. He uses people, and sometimes what strikes us to be paradoxical or even ironic at times is the kinds of people that he uses and the ways that he uses them. And you're going to see some of those truths in both of these characters tonight. Uh, Up until now, it's been mainly about the three women who are widows. But now we get introduced into chapter 2, Boaz. Boaz is the only person that has that name in the entire Bible. There are no other Boazes. 
The word literally has a little bit of a broad range of meaning. Um, most of the time it means the idea or conveys the idea of strength. It's the same word, if you want to cross-reference it, Judges chapter 6 and verse 12, when the, you know, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, and he's threshing you know, in a hiding place, the, he's threshing the wheat, you know, and he's there, and it says, O mighty man of valor. That's the same word as Boaz. Um, it, it, and it, it, it pictures a war hero or someone who's a great fighter or a warrior, although Boaz isn't a fighter physically or a warrior in a battle. He is certainly a warrior for God in other ways. The, um, the word Boaz means strength, or literally in him is strength. Um, and the Bible calls an ESV, if you want to look there in chapter 2, I'm going to find them in Luke chapter 2, um, Ruth chapter 2, and verse number 3, I'm sorry, verse number one. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. A worthy man. A worthy man, um, that's what he was. Now this is the same word, as I said in Judges 6, 12. It's also the same word to describe, I'm going to say a little later, Ruth. Ruth in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 11 is called a worthy woman. So if you were making like a chart tonight, you'd have Boaz here, worthy man, and you'd have... Uh, Ruth over on this side, a worthy woman, all right? And then we would also see that it's the same word used in 31.10. A woman, uh, the Proverbs 31 woman, a woman who is far above rubies, or the same, we could say this, that the Proverbs 31 woman is a worthy woman. It's, it's talking about someone's character. It's talking about someone who has integrity. So Boaz is the strong man. Now listen, um, Ruth was married to, however you want to say his name, Malan, right? But Malan's name means sickness or weakness. So the idea is a contrast. She was married to a guy from Israel, and he was weak and not strong at all. And now she is going to end up being married to the kinsman redeemer, and he is completely strong. They are completely opposites. The only other few times that the word Boaz is used in the Bible is pretty significant. It's not a name, but this is kind of a little bit, if you really have read your, and again, let me have a little commercial. If you read the Bible through in a year, it's well worth your time. There's little calendars that Bob brought us out there from the Gideons that you can follow the schedule to do it. Those are available at the Welcome Center. And let me give you a real a little explanation. There are numerous disciplines when it comes to the Bible, and they're all worthy and, and useful, and you ought to do all of them, but they are not the same. Bible reading, Bible meditation, Bible memorization, are all, they're, they're completely different, but they're all necessary. Um, meditating on the Bible is not the same as reading the Bible, and obviously memorizing would be different. But reading the Bible is important because if you don't read the Bible in its entirety— you won't see how all the stories connect and work together. Too many times we go to the Bible and the first thing we look at is application, but we need to look at interpretation and we need to see how the stories put together. Too many Christians read the Bible as a series of Aesop's fables where there's kind of a story with a moral to it and then the moral is that how do I live my life in a better way that helps me? 
that's really not the intention of the stories of the Bible. They connect, they have a redemptive value. The big term, theological, meta narrative, meaning it's a big, huge story that God's puts together. And although there's 66 books and a bunch of stories, they all are interconnected. And the main connection, obviously, is Jesus. Um, but here's the thing that you need to be able to see. And you might not, if you don't read the Bible as a whole, you'll miss this story. And it's mentioned a couple places 1 Kings 7, 13 through 22. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 17, when Solomon erects the temple, there are two major pillars that are put into the temple that help hold it up. And they actually named these two pillars. The name of the one is Boaz. That was the name of the pillar, which means firmness or strength. And the other one is but if you really know this, then you deserve a prize, I suppose. It's J-A, in the English it would be Jachin, or they don't have J's in Hebrew. It would be Yachin, it's a Ya sound, and it means to be established. So when you walked into the temple, you would see this. God's promises to God's people are firm, and they've been established. So Boaz's name is actually connected with the very way that we're framing this text tonight, and that is that God keeps his promises. They are firm, and they as a sta- in fact, Boaz's name actually means that. And so these two pillars, when you walked in there, would represent that. Also, if you want to take time, little other things you want to write down, Psalm 21 is a royal psalm of David, and he tells about how God has blessed him as making him king, which was in fulfillment of what he's doing in the book of Ruth. But he begins in verse 1, the first verse of Psalm 21, and the very last verse, verse 13, and he says, in his strength that the Lord has done this. In his strength, and that's the word Boaz. So that little psalm, at the beginning and the end, has that word Boaz in it, again giving us a great picture that God, despite difficult circumstances in David's life, has helped him and maintained his rule and his reign as king just as he's promised. And can I tell you this? Remember the backdrop. Ready? How important is it for Ruth, and especially Naomi, who's grown up as an Israelite, in the days of the judges, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes and there was no king in Israel, that you still believe that God keeps his promises? Now, see, when you put it in context... This is not done in a vacuum. And so when you get to chapter 2 and you see God begin to work and they begin to trust him and believe that he is able to do what he says despite circumstances, see, then the application comes to us. Do we not in America live in dark days? Do we not live in a day where everyone does right in his own eyes? I mean, we live in very similar times. And let me tell you this tonight. I hope minimally you walk away with saying this, that God keeps his word. That, listen, it may look like a lot of things are going against me. And and we're going to see in a minute about providence. But there's a lot of bitter providences that come into Naomi and Ruth's life in chapter 1. I mean, you have, they don't have enough food. And they have their... Her, her husband dies, and both of their husbands die. There's a famine in the land, and a lot of things are going wrong in their life. In the midst of a lot of difficulties and a lot of difficult times, God is going to teach them through bitter providences how he can reverse that, how God can keep his promise, and here's how he does it. He brings people into their lives. 
He does that. Those people are able to take what looks like impossible situations that leave them absolutely no hope or future, that nothing's ever going to get better, and God is able, through the people he brings like Boaz into their lives, to totally reverse that. Can you take that into your mind and life tonight and say, is that you? Maybe you're listening at home or you're here tonight and you're saying like, hey, you know, there's some difficult things going on in my life. And you know what? The pandemic and my job, and I'm not sure about this in my family, and our finances, and you could go on and, and enumerate the possible things that might be going on in people's lives. But what we ought to be firmly established in is this truth and this confidence that God has the power and ability to keep his word no matter what's going on in our lives. So God works his story through people, but watch, not just any people, right? These are people who know him and people who have a character, like Boaz, people who use their resources uh, for godliness and for the good of others. So let me tell you this. Let me ask you this question, and, and maybe we'll get some responses here. Boaz means strong, so we see what kind of man he is. He's a godly kind of strong, and he's a strong warrior for God. But in our world, if someone said, oh, that, that guy's a really strong kind of a guy, they might meet so, something completely different. So give me some descriptions tonight of a contrast between a strong man in godly pursuit or, or in a godly perspective or a, a strong man from a worldly perspective, what are some of the differences between those kinds of men? What would you say would be a difference or a contrast between them? You can just say it right there, or I can bring a mic if you want to, to use it. What would you say? What? Say that again. Okay. You can trust him if he's a godly man. And that kind of strength is he's a man who's honest. What he says, like God, he's going to do, right? Excellent. So what else? What's another contract? What would be a strong man, godly strong man, and a worldly strong man? What's the difference? Humility versus arrogance. Okay, humility versus arrogance. Can you elaborate a little bit more? Give me an example if you can. Okay, good. You got Boaz who's using his crops, his fields to help someone out who is six times in the book of Moabitess, a foreigner. Even she's shocked by why would you help me this way? But that's the kind of guy, because his strength is giving to others who others might not help some humility instead of saying, hey, I know who you are. You're not getting anything and I'm better than you, right? That sort of thing. John, what's another contrast? Strength, right? Strength of not necessarily of character, but strength and success. Strength of what they've built, their accomplishments, and that's what they're known for. Maybe not the things like that. Yes. I would say that, that the godly man will use um, his strength to protect, and the, you know, the other one, the other guy. 
Worldly. Okay, good. Now he uses it not to take advantage of people, right? When he could, because he has to tell other workers to don't take advantage of her. And actually, the word is touch her, which might even have sexual implications. So, because she's a foreigner. So, but he uses his strength not to take advantage of people or to abuse people or, or to get one over on people, right? But he uses it to protect people and, and to speak up for them. That, that's a great, great contrast in the text. Any other ones? Yes, Fander. Say that again. Yes, he's, not, he's already wealthy because that's part of what the word worthy means. He has integrity, character. It also talk, talks about sometimes about being wealthy. So he has his own fields. He's got workers. So obviously he's got wealth, but he's not, he's not a taker. He's a giver. And that's the difference between that. Excellent, excellent. Ruth, on the other hand, if we look at tonight, she is a godly woman in contrast with Orpah. Um, Orpah's name, literally in Hebrew, it's almost humorous to be some, if it wasn't so serious. Um, it, her name means back of the neck, which means she turned around, walked away. I think and that's about all you see when she leaves is the back of her neck. I, most commentators think that that just is a name indicating that she wasn't loyal. What a contrast uh, as a worthy woman, um, the difference between her and Ruth. Ruth says... She doesn't turn her back on Naomi. and Instead, the Bible uses the word clings to her. And you can see that in verses 14 through 18 of chapter 2. In fact, I don't know how many of you, did anybody at your wedding, and maybe this is more of a past thing when I was growing up, but some people have this passage read at their wedding. As part, did anyone have this read at their wedding? Am I going to? Yeah, nobody. Okay. I was wrong. But no, there are a lot of people who did that in the past. But nevertheless, it's a word. And why they do it at weddings is Genesis 2.24. The word cling is in there that a, uh, a man should leave his father and mother and cling, uh, uh, right? Cling, the word cling, it means to glue, be glued to. And, and so here's Orpah. She turns around and goes back to her gods and her people. But instead, Ruth says she clings to her. And, and now watch. This is really a great picture now that Ruth has decided that she is going to be worshiping uh, Naomi's God and, and be with her people, look to the degree that she makes this commitment. Talk about a contrast. Let me go back to Ruth chapter 2 and verse 14. I'm sorry, yes. Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, that's where I was messing up there. Chapter 1 and verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah, Orpah, not Orpah, Orpah, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, that's the word, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth says, don't say that to me. In other words, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. Now, here's what she says. For where you will go, I will go. Where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Listen to her. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Listen to what she's saying. She's not only saying, I'm going to follow Israel's God instead of my old God, so she's turning her back. You know, 
Orpah turned her back on Naomi, right? But Ruth turns her back on her past life and her false gods and all that life. So they both turn their back, but in completely different ways, right? It's really a fork in the road for both of these widowed young women, right? And they go opposite directions. But listen to what Ruth says. What a great discipleship application for us. Here's what she says. She says, for where you go, I will go. And why does that matter? Because she doesn't know where she's going to go and what's going to happen to her. Remember this. They have no husbands. They have no, right, no sons. They have no hope. They have no future. They don't know of anyone who's going to redeem them. So when she says, I'll go where you go, that's a totally faith thing because she doesn't know what any of it means yet, right? And, And by the way, this is a new faith that she has. So talk about having someone saying things like this who's only been saved for a completely very short period of time, if you want to say it that way. Where you lodge, I will lodge, which is pretty ironic since they don't have a place to lodge, right? Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. But how far, listen to this, how far someone so newly becoming a proselyte to uh, Judaism, how far would she take it? Think through this just for a second. Ready? Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. It's the only place in the book that talks about a burial. And listen, Naomi is young. I mean, uh, Ruth is young. Naomi is older. So what's the odds when she makes the statement? Naomi's going to die first, and Ruth will live many, many years after her. What kind of faith statement is she making? She's making this to say, even when you're dead and gone, Naomi, in many, many years past, I want you to know I will still be in Israel. I will still be where you were. I'll still be following your God. And and listen to this. And when I die, they're not taking me back and burying me in Moab. I will die and be buried where you are. In other words, here's what she's done. Left it all behind. All of it behind. Now do you see the huge contrast between Orpah and Ruth? And and, and here's what Ruth is doing. She, listen, and ask yourself, is this you? In the midst of a horrible situation that seems to have no future at all, she's had a brand new conversion. She doesn't really know all that much about Israel's God, but she has the faith to be able to look ahead to what possibly could be, and to believe that God can do it. That he's going to give her a place to lodge, he's going to give her food, he's going to give her a a future and a history so that she'll be living here, dying here, and buried here, and that her whole life from then on out will be taken care of. Now, how many new Christians do you know that have that kind of faith? That's pretty incredible. But see, isn't that exactly what Jesus asked? Here's what he says. You want to follow me? You have to give up everything. Turn your back on it. He says, don't turn your back. You know, don't leave and go back. Don't, you know, put the plow this way and then head back. He has so many admonitions in the gospel about leaving everything behind and you're going a new direction. And and listen, that's a good admonition for all of us. That here's what it means to be committed. Here's what it means to really go after God, and that is to give him everything. That Jesus, I'm following you. I'm not going back. I have no reserves. All I know is I'm following you. I don't even know what the future holds by doing that, but that's where I'm headed. Now listen, 
Let me go on real quick, last thing. So God works to keep his promises through people. And Boaz and Ruth are really a study in contrast to those other ones in their passage. And we would say, that's what it means to be a worthy woman and a man. And the question would be, of course, are you worthy like that? Would God be able to say, hey, so-and-so, I'd like to do things at Faith Baptist through him or her. You know, if they were worthy like that, because Boaz and Ruth were different than almost everyone else around them in a very difficult time. That's what God's looking for to work his story through. Secondly, he doesn't just work through people. God keeps his promises through providence. I love verse 3 of chapter 2. It says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Underline this. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. In the Hebrew, it's a repetition. It means this. Literally, she chanced her chance. That's the word. She chanced her chance. Not because the writer of Ruth believed in luck or chance. It's a literary device, meaning from a human perspective, that it just happened. In other words, there was no prior plan. She didn't know anything in advance. Otherwise, there was a redeemer there that was possibly there for her. And so she happens to go into the field. Now, the way I see it, the way I understand it, is that in Bethlehem at that time, there were fields that people planted. And they were like, it was like this, a large field, and, and they were all in rows. Like you went like this, a field here, a field here, and there might be seven or eight of them in a row, and then you might have some space, and there'd be another row of fields, and, and they all were like close together. And it says literally that she picked gra- or gleaned in the field that was allotted to Boaz. In other words, he had a part of his inheritance that he had got down through the lines, and that part was his field. She was gleaning. Now, the laws were in Leviticus 19 and 23 and Deuteronomy 24, part of the justice and mercy kindness system of God in the Old Testament to help the foreigner, the stranger, and the widow, which are these people that we're talking about. You could not take everything off the corner of your fields. You had to leave things out there for people who were poor and destitute and didn't have anything, which is Naomi and Ruth. So she goes in, and again, remember the days of the judges, dark days, no kings. Not everybody's very godly right now. But there is a guy, unlike probably most everybody else who has fields, he leaves stuff. He follows the Jubilee laws. He's, keep, he's keeping those laws, and he doesn't do the reaping on the outsides of his field. She might have, and we don't know for sure, she might have gone to some of the other fields or looked as she walked past them, but they were harvesting everything because they weren't following those laws, which was a good reason why they were in trouble with God, Right? But she came across this one field, not knowing whose it was, and she happened to come across Boaz's field, happened, chance by chance, and he had left stuff. He had left so much stuff that she gleaned all day long and got an ephra, which was five and a half gallons, which is about 30 pounds of food. And that was just one person working, so there was a lot out there for her to do it. Now listen, see, he was godly, and keeping the law of Torah, and she comes by, comes to his field, and she starts gleaning there. You read all the totality of Ruth 2, what you're going to find is the whole thing is made up of five dialogues and conversations, most of which are between Boaz and Ruth. But what the, most people don't ever ask is how in the world did they ever get together to have those conversations? And I would tell you this, the invisible hand of God R.C. Sproul says. The invisible, providence brought them together. 
Proverbs 16.33 says that the dice, or we would call today the dice, or the lot is cast in the lap, but the decision is of the Lord. Providence is what God is doing behind the scenes. It's not miraculous. It's not in the same sense of supernatural. But God is orchestrating events and details. Listen, even the seemingly things that aren't important. So, I go out today, and I'm getting gasoline, and I go in to get a Diet Coke into Wawa after I fill up my car, and I'm standing there, and someone comes from behind me and grabs me today, and I'll leave it nameless, but it was someone I was talking to, and a church person, and hadn't seen him in a while, and I was encouraging to be here, and I had a talk with them, and they were going to come to church. I talked to them for a while. It was a really, really good conversation, and I thought, was that just an accident? That's not an accident, is it? When my daughter at McKinsey had ear tumors from birth that we didn't know about, and she had nine surgeries, do you know the number one best physician in the entire United States was in Philadelphia, and my daughter was born here, and we moved here from Ohio to here, and when she needed that doctor the most, it was a 45-minute drive away. But that's just an accident. Those things have nothing to do with God, right? Wrong, right? All those things. Small thing, listen to this one. So I'm going out after Sunday night service, and I'm going to go to the Christmas party down the road, and I didn't realize that the table I needed to take was too big to fit into my car, right? So I'm, putting, I'm opening the thing, and I'm trying to get there because most everybody has already left, and I'm one, I needed to be there first, and I'm one of the last ones there. I'm trying to cram this table in there, and it's not working. My wife goes, what do you want me to do? We only have one car, and everybody's gone. I said, I don't know. I, I guess we'll have to find another way or do something else. And right then, George Sprague walks out, and he walks right over to my car. And I go, George, where you, get, you got a car here? He goes, yeah. I go, what kind of car? He goes, it's that one. I go, can you put my table in your car? He goes, yeah. And then George goes, you know I'm going right down there anyways. Now, that's, is that as monumental as my daughter needing surgery from the greatest physician in her area? No. But can I tell you this? They're both of God right? It's the little things as well. Let me tell you another story, right? Ellie is in Colombia, and she's got a blame breed, and a bleed, and they don't have the same kind of medical, you know, attention that we can get here in America, but the number one neurosurgeon, Sandy told me today, in all of Colombia is the one who lives five minutes from the hospital where they are and is taking care of Ellie's case. That's an accident, right? That's chance upon, no, it's not chance upon, you know how, you know how God keeps his promises, you know how he works? He does it through providence. He does it through meetings and conversations. Did you know tomorrow that every person that you come and meet, talk about five conversations, Ruth, two. do you know every person you talk to and every meeting you have is all by divine appointment? Do you know that? That God is orchestrating and working details. He does that. So let me tell you, to go through tomorrow and say, God, give me eyes to see your invisible hand. Help me think of, see, there is no person I meet tomorrow that is just mundane and meaningless. It has purpose, and God is sovereign. And Charles Spurgeon said, there is no such thing as a maverick molecule. Meaning, everything in our lives is orchestrated by God. And so everywhere you go, every person you meet, every conversation you have is on purpose from God. What would change tomorrow and every day if you had eyes to see like that? 
If you could see everything that happens in your life as providence from God and that God's using it, listen, not just for you, he's using it because he wants to use you in every place you go to help tell his story of redemption to the world. Listen, one last thing. If you'll notice anything about Ruth in this story as God weaves providence between the conversations between her and Boaz, you'll find that she is a woman of action. The verbs are, and she said... And she sent out and went, and she came, and she gleaned. And over and over through the, she is acting. Let me tell you this. Divine providence does not mean that you are exempt from activity. It's not an excuse for passivity. In other words, God's working so I can sit around and do nothing. No, God worked providentially as she went out and did what Torah commanded her to do and what God wanted her to do and to how she loved Naomi and worked hard. And she was out there, and the Bible even says she only rested a little bit. See, why we, you know what? We can go out and work really hard and we can do everything that we can do as a church to reach our community, that you can do everything you can to witness to people, that you should do everything you can at your job. And while you're working hard and doing everything you can, you know what we have confidence in? That God is working behind the scenes to do everything that we cannot do and use everything that we are doing to accomplish his purposes. Oh, providence is such a wonderful truth. And I pray that you'd see that at Christmas, that the parties you go to, the people you see, your neighbors who need the, God, that the cookies you bring them, and the times that they come over, and the thing, all of that is being used by God, and he wants to use you in his story if you have eyes to see. Let's pray. Father, help us. What a wonderful truth that you work through people like us, and you work with people like us through providence. Thank you for that truth. May you give us eyes of faith to see differently this week all the way through Christmas and beyond that we would see the conversations and people in our lives and the things that take place. It's not just little lucky things or accidental things, but divinely set things because we're in a story, the story of Jesus. Help us to live that way for his glory, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.